Steph. If you're joining us online, we are glad that you are with us and uh, looking forward to a great, uh, a great Independence Day celebration. If you're looking for something to do, I was going to grab a flag on the way in here and I forgot to do that. Wave my little flag around. We're going to be handing out flags at, at the park on Tuesday. And so if you want to get in on that, uh, along with the flags, we'll have John and Romans, gospel tracts, Bibles, water, other beverages, uh, non-alcoholic, of course. And uh, we'll have a good time and uh, because we'll be filled with the Spirit. So I hope you guys come out for that and enjoy that. And, of course, at 930, they'll break down for the fireworks. And that's one of the best fireworks displays you're going to get to see. So we hope that uh, you come out for that as well. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Exodus. We're in Exodus chapter 10. And as promised, we're going to pick back up where I left off. Now, if you were here last week, I said, there's so much in verses 1 and 2, I could preach a whole sermon. (laughs) So I did. But anyway, um, so this morning we're going to pick back up uh, in Exodus chapter 10 and uh, and just get the balance of of that passage. So as we prepare to celebrate Independence Day, uh, I want to pause and celebrate some of the folks that God has brought here. I saw that Dave... And Joan and Ann are here, and you are a very special guest. They all, they don't ever come and tell me in advance because they know I'm gonna just. I'd like you guys to just uh, just give them some love. I don't I don't stand up for just a moment. I mean, <clears throat> yeah, they're not gonna stand, but that's okay. <laughs> so Ann served faithfully in China for how many years were you there, Ann? Seven, seven, perfect number. And then, of course, COVID. During COVID, she uh, she fortunately, kind of unfortunately, and fortunately, all at the same time, was out of the country uh, unexpectedly and was in Taiwan on a on a vacation when COVID locked down in China. So she was separated from all of her belongings, um, and and then spent a you know all the limbo that went on. It was a very difficult transition for her to come home, and so we really appreciate her steadfastness in China, her transition back, and. And man, uh, being a missionary is not an easy thing. So we appreciate the efforts that uh, that God um, that she made and that God blessed in in China. So I'm saying that publicly now. Hope, hope I'm blown her cover if she ever wants to go back. But uh, too bad. Uh, <clears throat> so um, because we know the Chinese do know everything that we say. But anyway, uh, <laughs> so, uh, at, at any rate, uh, also, uh, just uh, it's good to see Bernie Simon in the house. I saw him somewhere. I didn't get a chance to love Bernie, man, up from Fort Smith, Arkansas. Good to see you, man. Yeah, Bernie. and, and uh, <clears throat> Now, I do need you to talk to your wife because I just friended her this morning on Facebook, and I think it's a scam. But uh, if she has not like sent me a wave thing today, then I need to make sure I block that. But anyway, uh, Nancy and Bernie, uh, uh, this is no joke. That's for real. So I was like, hey, Nancy, Simon, and then Bernie shows. So what's that? Just block it. Yeah, that's been going on. It's been going around. So uh, they're serving uh, the Lord down in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and Tyson uh, and Holly Simon uh, is is his son and daughter-in-law. They are working with FCA and and Tyson heads up the FCA branch down there in Fort Smith, and they're doing great things for God. Probably one of the leading uh, outreaches for FCA probably in the country. I mean, it's up there. So uh, they are very busy. So it's good to have you back, brother. And uh, it's nice that when people leave, they actually still want to come home. So we, we appreciate that. And then I saw Chris uh, and Kenzie were here today, and I appreciate you having you guys here as well. We've been praying for you and, and love having you guys in the house. So. Uh, and all the rest of you are also special. Just want you to know that. If you're a first-time guest and what have you, we're glad that everyone is here. I, I don't always call people out, so um, if you want to see proof of that, 
<clears throat> you can ask the Englishes. So uh, if you want to see proof of that, just call them out. So if you want to see proof of that, you can just come back any given Sunday and see that I won't call everybody out every Sunday. So, uh, but you are all special in, guys, in God's eyes. So got all those things uh, out of the way. I want to get back to the text. It's Independence Day weekend. Uh, I know everybody's looking forward to celebrating and all of those things. But when you boil it down, Independence Day and the sacrifices of those who struggle for freedom are are really a reminder that God has moved heaven and earth, right, uh, to get people free. And as we go to Exodus chapter 10, we're in the midst of these plagues, which are signs both to Israel and the Egyptians of God's power and his desire to free the children of Israel, which we knew were oppressed, right? They were underneath this oppression. And there was this war ultimately for worship. And that's what we are really dealing with in this text. And so <clears throat> this impactful deliverance that, that uh, God brought through uh, Moses and through the children of Israel is just a foreshadow and a picture of the great deliverance that comes through Jesus Christ. And as we come to Independence Day, if we celebrate Independence Day in the United States, which, uh, of course, is, is unique to our nation, so if you're watching online, this is a holiday that we celebrate here in the United States, uh, we're, so, we're so excited about that. Why? Because, well, we're free, but really... Really, really, if you really boil Independence down uh, and Independence Day down in this nation, it boils back down to Jesus Christ. The real struggle was one over of religious liberty, freedom of worship, freedom uh, obviously from tyranny. But there was a monarch that had a the, that, that had a king that believed that he was installed by God, right? And it was a it was a the, theocratic type of rule, and it was oppressive and and. We would use the term legalistic and, and that the state was tied to the, the decree of the king that was to try, to, tied to the authority of God. And a bunch of people just came together and said, hey, wait a minute. If this is how God's ruling, we're going to appeal to God because he's the ultimate authority. And so we'll just we're just going to go for it and see, if, you know, uh, if we're in the right or in the wrong. And by God's grace, the nation was born uh, not without a lot of struggle, not without struggles after that, of course, God judged our nation greatly. The, still the bloodiest war that this nation's ever faced was the Civil War, right? So um, because God judged us, right? You start a country and say all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with inalienable rights, and then not everybody has those. Well, God will judge that, right? And so we've had to own up to, to, to what God is doing in this country. So uniquely of all the nations in the world, I think the United States is a nation and citizens thereof, especially if you actually understand history, and don't just believe what, you know, the history of the last, you know, five or six, ten years. Uh, when you understand history, you realize that God is working and has been working throughout history to free people. But now he frees them through the, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It frees. It doesn't matter what nation you live in, uh, what geopolitical place you are in. What really matters is do you know Jesus Christ? Because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he makes men free. And so we're so excited to be in Christ. And we are excited. I'm so excited to be in a nation uh, where I can speak openly, like I did just already, about uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and about uh, geopolitical situations as well. Now, Ralph Waldo Emerson described the first shots at the Battle of Lexington and Concord as the shot heard around the world. How many of you have heard about that, right? So hopefully all of you. If you don't know about that, you should go study that. That's part of your history here in this nation. So the battle was little more than a skirmish initially in Lexington, and it escalated as it went to, to Concord. But there was several that died in Lexington, um, and it got more increasingly organized 
as they worked their way uh, toward uh, uh, Concord to confiscate the weapons. It was actually it was a gun grab deal. And the, the Patriots said, nope, <clears throat> we're not doing that. And they organized, uh, and they were already used to organizing because they were fighting the French and Indian War. So uh, these people were experienced in, in battle. People think they were just farmers, and they were, and just settlers, and they were. But they were also marksmen, and they were also people who knew how to organize and defend themselves. So they, they were attempting to do that, and, and you know the story, and you know the history of all of that. And, and really, that was preceding the actual revolution. Uh, it took about a year before the actual Declaration of Independence and the, the revolution, but it was really an action by the British because of the Boston Tea Party and because of, of the, uh, the Massachusetts uh, area there. They had declared the independent uh, governments, I forget the name of it, uh, where they were like, hey, look, uh, the Massachusetts, uh, the colonists are going to declare their own uh, governments because we're not happy with what's going on in Boston. So there was this tension and this friction, and the king had declared you know, these people to be rebellious. And, and, so, and so it kind of came to this apex at that battle. And, and so Ralph Waldo Emerson, he said this, he says, man, that shot uh, that rang out, really rang around the world. What did he mean by that? Well, it just kind of reverberated that there was a battle on, right? There was a war going on in these colonies, in this place. At the time, you know, the United States was nothing. There's just a bunch of colonies and, and a bunch of settlers. You know, it was, it was all about making money, basically, over here on this new land. It was new opportunities to make money, new entrepreneurs and all of that. And, and so, so this shot was not about you know, big geopolitical conflict like we have today, you know, Russia, United States, China, Iran, Israel, you know, it was about a bunch of people that just, you know, were like, saying, get off of me. Um, but there weren't very many places, if any, in the world where something like that had been successful in, in self-governance. And, and so when Ralph uh, Waldo Emerson wrote that, he was really talking about this, this experiment, this, this, this sparked something that the whole world was going to be looking into and has been looking into for over 200 years now. See, how is this going to work out? And so so we saw, and, and you think, well, what's that got to do with anything with Exodus? Well, I'm about to tell you. Because we saw in Exodus 9 that the war for worship that was underway between Moses and Pharaoh, God and the devil, would resonate well beyond the children of Israel and the Egyptian uh, gods that it uh, was impacting to the entire earth as the entire earth would learn of this epic power to deliver um, Israel, who God called his son, uh, from the power of this pagan uh, system, these gods with a small g, of Egypt, and the king, Pharaoh, who represented, uh, represented those, um, those gods, of course, as the son of Ra himself. So you have God's son, Israel, uh, in the Old Testament sense, as we define in Exodus 4, I believe that's verse 22, and then you have Ra's son, you have Pharaoh, and then we've been seeing these battles. For so, through seven plagues, you know, God is 7-0. and o. As we hit this eighth plague and we got into it last week, uh, we're reminded that in Exodus 9 and verse 14, God says, you know, I'm going to declare through Moses that, that he would pour out uh, plagues on Pharaoh, on his court, on his countrymen, uh, so that, that it would be a reminder to Moses and to Pharaoh uh, that there is no God like Jehovah God the God of Moses. So Pharaoh was supposed to get the message. God's telling them that way back in the seventh plague. Like, hey, remember, Moses, we're doing all this so Pharaoh knows who's boss, right? But then we also, we also saw in Exodus 9.16, 
Um, uh, it says, In very deed this cause have I raised thee up to show in thee uh, my power and <clears throat> that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Now, I believe that is not just uh, something that God wanted to do at the time. It was something that God was doing uh, throughout all time. And if you were here a few weeks ago, I mentioned how I believe Cecil B. DeMille really capitalized on that. Because throughout all time, God is using this conflict between the people of God and Pharaoh and these deities. And he's using this as, a, as, a, as something that the whole world needs to see and understand. And he's, he's deliberately stepping through each one of these deities and just tearing them down plague by plague, you know, shot by shot. Not because God couldn't just deal with this with, with his, just a wave of his pinky. It could be over, just like it was in Sodom, just like it, it was in, in uh, Noah, with Noah in Genesis 6. I mean, God can bring judgment any way he wants, and it can be as swift as he wants it to be, and it could be right now, and it could be over. But God is stepping through this deliberately. And one of the things that's revealing about this is not just his power to deliver Israel, who obviously that is the thrust of the story, but also to see the hardness of a man's heart. And that man's heart is Pharaoh. And we don't want our hearts to be that hard, do we? No, I don't. I don't want my heart to be that hard. So I hope I'm learning the lessons. If you aren't, I will. Because that's a big lesson to learn is that a man's heart can be so hard that they refuse to bow their knee to the Lord. So God raised up uh, Moses, and, he, rose, and he, he raised Moses up to be like a shot heard around the world in the war for worship. That's why this story took place. God rose him up and he delivered them because he needed everyone to see how this story has resonated throughout time. There is very few people who don't understand or under, at least have some concept that something, of course, they'll mock it and make fun of it, went on with Israel and Egypt. But it's a major deliverance story that will lead us to the Passover, of course, which will lead us to the law, which will lead us to worship in the wilderness, which will lead us ultimately to victory in the promised land as they cross over the Jordan River. And there's so many types and pictures here that God is using to teach us his word. And so last week I told you I could spend a lot of time on those first two verses, and I did it. So this morning, let's jump back in. Uh, to lessons uh, and what we're learning from Locust, part B. And if you have your Bibles, we're in Exodus chapter 10. And uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 20 again to refresh you. I know you've slept since last week. I know you've probably memorized those first 20 verses since last Sunday. But for those of you that haven't, let's stand together and read this together and kind of get an eye on what's happening from the Word of God. It says in Exodus chapter 10 and verse 1, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart, and the heart of his servants, that I might show these my signs before him. Verse 2. And that thou mayest tell in the ears of thy son and, the, and of thy son's son what things I have wrought in Egypt and my signs which I have done among them, that ye may know how that I am the Lord. And Moses and Aaron came unto Pharaoh and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. Else if thou refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow will I bring the locusts into thy coasts. And they shall cover the face of the earth, that one cannot be able to see the earth, and that they shall eat of the residue of that which is escaped, which remaineth unto you from the hail, and shall eat of every tree which groweth uh, for, uh, for you out of the field. 
and they sh- verse 6 and they shall fill thy houses and the houses of all thy servants and the houses of all the Egyptians which neither thy fathers nor thy fathers fathers have seen since the day that they were eat, uh, they were upon the earth unto this day and he turned himself and went out from Pharaoh and Pharaoh's Pharaoh's servants said unto him how long shall this man be a snare unto us let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Knowest thou not yet that, the, that Egypt is destroyed? Pharaoh, don't you get this? Verse 8. And Moses and Aaron were brought again unto Pharaoh, and he said unto them, Go serve the Lord your God. But who are these that shall go? And Moses said, Well, uh, we will go with, with our young and with our old and with our sons and with our daughters and with our flocks and with our herds. Will we go? For we must hold a feast unto the Lord. And he said unto them, Let the Lord be so with you. And I will let you go, and your little ones, look to it, for evil is before you. Not so. Go now, ye that are men, and serve the Lord, for that ye did desire. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Now, verses 10 and 11 are kind of confusing. Uh, What he's saying is, you guys are free to go, but I'm telling you, you don't need to go with your little kids. Just you men go. And he doesn't give him a chance to respond, because he knows what Moses is going to say. He's going to say, we're all going. And then you notice he's, and he drives them out. All right, so we end there in verse 11. So let's pick it up in verse 12. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand uh, over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come up upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land, even uh, all that the hail left. And Moses stretched forth his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested in all the coasts of Egypt. Very grievous were they. Before them uh, there were no such locusts as as they, neither after them shall be such. For they covered the face of the whole earth so that the land was darkened, and they did eat, eat every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. And there remained not any green thing in the trees or in the herbs of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste, and he said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive, I, <clears throat> I pray, forgive, I pray thee, my sin only this once, and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. And he went <clears throat> out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord turned a mighty, strong west wind, which took away the locusts and cast them into the Red Sea, there remain not one locust in all the coasts of Egypt. And verse 20, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the children of Israel go. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the Lord Jesus and thankful for this passage. Lord, it's a, it's a long read, but it's, a, it's important to see the whole story develop and, and, trans, uh, and, and, uh, and uh, to uh, be laid out as we consider and transpire as we consider everything that's in this passage. Lord, help us to to understand these lessons uh, from the locusts, Lord, and the, un- and the need to have such a, uh, a grasp of these things that, uh, Lord, we don't forget the lessons that we've learned from the Word of God. Help us to be uh, not forgetful hearers, but hearers that remember what you say and give those to the next generation so that we can prosper and we don't forget the lessons of the past. Lord, we don't want to have to go back and fight those same old battles. We want to go forward in faith. Lord, fill us with faith this morning as we continue in your Word. Help us to be obedient and go forward in the, in the promise and the providence of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.
All right, so just a little review from last week <clears throat> for those of you that are just catching up. Even though I covered a couple of verses, we still got a lot in. Last week we saw our story of redemption is to have generational impact. And so our story of redemption is to have a generational impact. You can see that as we read through the text. You can understand that this is a situation that impacts a lot of people. And, and it's not a story that was just a one-and-done thing. God wanted this to be rehearsed in the ears of his people to this day. And that's why we're teaching it here in this church even this morning. And so we talked about that and how important it was uh, for us to pass the, the lessons that God gives us and the deliverance story that God gives us on to the next generation. I do pray that all of us have a testimony of our salvation that we can pass on to the next generation as it was commanded uh, by the children of Israel to do in the Old Testament. We also saw the importance of repeating uh, the mighty works of God to the next generation <clears throat> um, in regard to uh, the essence of discipleship, right? That's the essence of discipleship. Part of that rehearsing and repeating the story is, is, is teaching the next generation what they need to know because they're going to face battles, right? And we went to Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 9, and we saw how important it was to teach uh, these things to your sons and your sons' sons. So it's to be generational, not just to your, your son, but to your son's sons right it's to be passed down and that's a picture for us of discipleship we know in second timothy 2 that we are paul called timothy his son in the lord and it wasn't his biological child it was his disciple right and he was handing to him he was entrusting to him the word of god i think we're pretty familiar with that i won't re-preach that from last week but that was the the second thing that we learned about about passing it on to the next generation and that generational responsibility and then the third thing we saw that jesus is the the only sign we need right so we're dealing with jews and we we went to first corinthians 1 and looked at verse 22 and how jews require a sign and god has always dealt with israel with a sign but also took you to the new testament and and we saw how that in matthew chapter 12 and verses 39 through 42 and matthew uh chapter 16 and verse 4 there came a time even in jesus public ministry after he did all the signs and wonders you could ever want that they kept saying, well, give us more signs. And Jesus says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you a sign. It's called the sign of Jonas. And he defines that for him, right? And we talked about that last week. And one part of that, obviously, is the resurrection, which is what we tend to focus on. But also a part of that was the hardness of the heart of Jonah. It's the hardness of the heart of the people who should have received that sign. And how that Nineveh, these Gentiles, will be a witness against you, Israel, because this this dude, this reluctant missionary named Jonah rolls up in to the middle of Nineveh and just has a sentence sermon. Says, hey, repent or God's going to bring judgment. And the next thing you know, they're all in sackcloth and ashes. And they're repenting all over the place. And it's one of the greatest revivals you've ever seen in the Bible. Right? So Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to give you a sign. It's a sign that you're going to remember. Because Gentiles have had a lot less opportunity. And, and, and people that you hate <laughs> have had a better opportunity than y'all. As the Messiah is right here in front of you, and you want more signs and more signs and more signs, I'll tell you, I'll give you a sign. It's the sign of Jonah. I'm going to die. I'm going to resurrect, just as I've said. And that's the sign you need to receive. And, and so we talked about that. Like for us today, it's really important as we touch on signs, and I ended on this last week, because, because today is a, going to, it's going to get increasingly difficult to discern truth if you're not tethered and anchored to the Word of God. Like if you don't have a working knowledge of this book, and you don't know how to rightly divide the word of God, which has always been important. But increasingly, as we go forward, 
You are not going to know what's truth and error if you do not hold fast to the faithful words as you have been taught. I just saw a video yesterday, some some uh, pervert uh, talking, perverting the word of God, talking about justifying all kinds of perversion from the Bible in a pulpit. Unbelievable. I saw two videos this week of that, which, you know, that's been going on for a long time. But as things go forward, you've got to understand there's going to be all kinds of deception. And signs and lying wonders are part of that. The magnitude of which I don't think many of us can probably comprehend. But as in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man, right? And so it's important that we get a hold of that and understand that when you have arrived somewhere, you no longer need what? A sign, right? When you have Christ, you don't need a sign. He is your sign. You got him, right? You don't need signs and wonders because you have Christ Jesus. And that's why he gives you his word so you know how to operate what God has given you. But we live in a time where people are, are getting caught up in signs. And, and, and I'm not denying there aren't going to be signs and wonders. The Bible actually says there will be signs and lying wonders right around the corner. And so you need to really understand that we're no longer looking for a sign because Jesus Christ is the sign that we've been looking for. We received his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so God is good. Now, don't misunderstand me. God did use signs. If you have questions about that, by the way, let me just throw a little commercial out. You can go to our website under the Listen, and you can find my series in Acts. And you can just go through the first probably seven chapters if you want to just do so, uh, so many sermons. And just listen to all of that, and I'll lay out all of that very clearly and on the signs and all that. And you'll, by the time you get through the, probably the third or fourth chapter, it's all done. So you can get a, a comprehensive understanding of all that. So... That's where we left off last week because we don't want anyone to be beguiled or deceived. It's important not only for us but the next generation that we pass on the truth of God's word and we live out the word of God so that they want to live out the word of God so that, that, that the generations uh, don't go back to the same bondage that they were in uh, in the situation with the children of Israel. And, of course, that's something that we don't want to repeat. So what we covered last week is that our story of redemption is to have generational impact. Now, as we look at Part B of this message, you'll see point two. And in your notes, it's going to, the second point is that our command to worship uh, God is unconditional. There is no, uh, no out on this uh, for Moses or for, for uh, anyone, for that matter. Exodus 10 and verse 3 says, And Moses and Aaron came unto Pharaoh, and he said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. All right, so this is quite a question, and it's really the question of the day. It's the question of all of our lives, actually. The question that God is asking is, how long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself before me? Pharaoh, I mean, we're on plague number, we're fixing to get to plague number eight, right? We've already been through seven of these, perfect number. You've had perfect judgment, and you still haven't let my people go. How long, how long are you going to wait? To let my people go. There's no doubt about who is large and in charge. It is God. Pharaoh was holding on to something, not only because he was covetous, but because he was full of pride. So point A, are you holding? Are you holding anything that God has commanded you to release? This is practical for everybody, even those of us that are saved. Are we holding on to things that God has said, let go of that? You see, Pharaoh was holding on to something that was precious to God. It was his people. And he said, let go. 
And, and Pharaoh says, no. You know, yesterday my, my son bought, he has a dog named Rhea, not that that matters. But he, he buys her this little chew toy, this uh, little rawhide chew toy, right? And that way that dog's loving up on that thing, you know, just going to town. And as soon as there's a window of opportunity, we have a, the eldest dog of the house, the smallest and eldest. Man, she is all over that thing. And you know what? As obedient as that little pooch is, and she's pretty obedient, when I say let go of Rhea's bone, you know what she did? She just looks at me. <laughs> you know, she's just gnawing on that thing. And I'm like, hey, let go. That bone is not your bone. You know what? That little pooch did not want to let go of, of the other dog's bone. Right? You know, Gentiles are like dogs. You know that? They fight over stuff. Sam's dog got smart after a while and, and even kept that bone in its mouth when it went out to use the restroom. I mean, it would not leave that bone alone because she knew that the other dog would sweep, sweep in and try to steal it. But we just, we just want to hold on, right? We, we find something we like and we just want to hold on to that thing. Well, you think about it. You know, Pharaoh had a lot at stake. At this point, you would think he'd be humbled, but he's not. And he doesn't want to let go of these people. Beloved, if you think when we go out to the streets uh, and we go to work and we go to school and we go to family functions and, and we know that people are in the bondage and the grip of Satan. And some of you know this right here in the room. You know Satan does not want to let go. He doesn't want to let go of his influence. He doesn't want to let go of people. But you and I, we have the power to go. We're like Moses and we're like saying, hey, come on, let's go. Follow me. And Satan is not easy always to let go. That's why we have to be patient. We have to be kind. Uh, Jeff, this morning, his class was teaching on, on the law of love, right? How important it is, right? That's why we have to be loving. We have to be patient. We have to be kind because we're in a conflict between good and evil to this day. And there are things that, that, this, that Satan will not want to let go of, especially once you give him place. At this point, point it made no sense to continue to resist God. He had lost credibility with the people. Moses had proven over and over that the Lord God, Jehovah, was mightier than the gods of Egypt. And he had real reason uh, for, I mean, Pharaoh had a real reason to, to let go, but he wouldn't let go of God's people because he was not humble. If we won't let go and we're disobedient, at the end of the day, it's the same problem Pharaoh had. We have a humility problem. And the opposite of being humble is being filled with pride. So is there anything that you're holding on to today that God is calling you to give him? You know, the first mention of worship is found in Genesis 22 and verse 5. Many, many of you are familiar with that. Abraham, the father of faith, was willing to, to let go of his only begotten son, Isaac, <clears throat> and, and, and sacrifice him to God, believing that God would resurrect him from the dead. And you know how it went as he was ready to offer his son God said, stop, I've got, a, I've, got, I've got propitiation. A ram is caught in the thicket. Use that ram and let your son go. And that story, beloved, we're, the, we're Isaac. We're the one that gets set free because the son of God died in our place. But the first thing we need to let go of is simply our life. You know, when it comes to salvation, that's really what we're doing is we're giving up our life and exchanging it for his and the gift of eternal life comes by faith when we call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But from that point on, we walk daily. Obviously, the, bit, the war is won. 
If you're in a war right now and you feel like you're in the bondage of sin and death, well, you are. If you want to be free from that, you, the war is won. You simply need to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior by faith in his finished work alone. It is finished. Right? His blood is sufficient. His sacrifice is enough. You simply have to receive that as a gift. You can't work your way to heaven. After you receive that gift and you're born again, you're quickened, you're brought to life, that doesn't mean the battle is over. You know, God's already called Israel his son. He's already made promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. He's already brought Joseph in. He's already built this nation up. But to this point, they've been a family. They haven't been an army. By the time they leave the nation, this, this, this situation, they are in fighting condition. They have now become an army ready to be established as a nation and take their place among all the peoples of the world as leaders. And so this is all about God developing them. And I tell you, beloved, when you get saved, man, the, the, really the war is won in the sense that, man, you are no longer uh, in, the, in the, the grip of Satan. But the reality is this. There is still a lot of work to be done. There's still a lot of obedience to be had. There's still a lot of humbling that has to be worked out in our life. And that's why Romans 12, Paul's giving an admonition in his doctoral thesis of the New Testament. And he gets to chapter 12 after revealing all these incredible uh, promises about what, by the way, what is God going to do with Israel, right? Uh, Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. And he lays all that out. He says, okay, now now we got all that settled. That God's not going to forsake his people Israel. Now let me turn to you. What about you? He says, well, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Right? Jesus fulfilled the law. We don't have to go offer a lamb. We don't have to go through the feast cycle. Why? Because Jesus Christ has fulfilled all of that. So, therefore, all you got to do is, is give your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, right? acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It's just reasonable. Do what is reasonable because we have a reasonable God. Because I've set you free and I've made you free, well, then live like a free man. That's what he's saying. We're getting ready to celebrate independence and liberty. What should the Christian really be doing? Well, we should be living like a free man, not bogged down with the weak and beggarly elements of this world, not having our minds convoluted with stuff that keeps us in bondage to this world, but stepping on out of that thing, free in our mind and walking like the free people that we are. There's freedom in this earth. I, I'm promising you this. Wherever there's freedom, I don't care what geopolitical situation there is. There's freedom because there are people that are born again and they're free. There were slaves in this nation that were more free than landowners. Why? Because they knew the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the spirit of God that dwells in the believer. That's what makes people free. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, hey, listen, because you're free, act like it. Give your body as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. That is a reasonable thing to do. It starts off with being reasonable and saying, hey, hey, <clears throat> though your sins be as scarlet, I'll make them white as snow. Come and reason with me over that. Your salvation it starts there. But it doesn't end. The reasoning doesn't stop there. As we get sanctified in Christ, right, as we get set apart, God says, hey, listen, give yourself over to me. Walk in the liberty wherewith you've been called and, and go on and, and go ahead and be that living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is a reasonable. It's your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Beloved, where's the will of God? 
Oh, come on now. I'll give you the hint. It's in the Word. Where's the word? Where is the will of God? In the Word, right? This is the this is the will in the Testament. You got it. All right, someone passes, and, and uh, yeah, pray for Shane. This his brother passed this last week. They had the funeral yesterday, Shane Sisson. You know what? <clears throat> we have a will. You know what my will, what I have in my will, is where my will goes. God's will goes, I should say. Both of my kids are named in my will, and they get each of them get one of these. This is the word of God. This is the will of God. The testament's not in force unless <clears throat> until the death of the what? testator hebrews tells us in hebrews chapter 9 jesus christ died on the cross and he has left us an old testament full of promises to israel and he's given us a new testament for the church and then he bookends it in revelation to show us how all that's going to come together into eternity future it's a beautiful thing we have the will and the testament of the lord jesus christ we have the word of god it's amazing and so that is what we can form our mind to is this book now i guarantee you the Chat GPT or whatever that thing called, it's going to come up with a new one for you in 45 minutes. And it's not going to be this one. It's, not, it's going to change that one. Beloved, this is the one we've been given. This is the one that God has preserved for us so that we know how to live our lives until he comes to catch us away. So point B, I've got to keep moving. Uh, and before I jump into point B there, just let me say this. When it comes to worship, circling back to Genesis 22, uh, in the first mention, worship. It's a free will offering. That's the main thing you got to get a hold of. It's a free will offering. No one's going to come up here, put your arm behind your back, and force you to worship Jesus. That's something that, that we all have to... I mean, God is going out of his way to say, Hey, uh, Pharaoh, would you just work with me here? And the Pharaoh's like, No, 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 no. God's finally like, Okay, then no. No, it is. Your opportunities to worship are going to end. Point B, judgment comes upon those who refuse to willingly worship God. So in verses 4 through 6, that's really what we see. As you look at the text there, and I'm going to work through this quickly. It says, else, if thou refuse to let my people go. Here's the consequence. Behold, tomorrow will I bring the locusts into thy coasts. And they shall cover the face of the earth, that one cannot be able to see the earth. And they shall eat the residue of that which is escaped, which remaineth unto you, from the hail and shall eat every tree which groweth for you out of the field. Now I mentioned last week how um, there was still some um, <clears throat> some crops left over that God, in His mercy and grace, in the hail allowed it to come up out of the ground after the judgment because they were their food staples. And now God's coming back around saying, "Guys, listen. Now I'm going to take I'm going to take your food staples and I'm going to take all the trees while I'm at it. You ready to you ready to bow yet, Pharaoh? Of course he's not. So judgment is swift." Notice he says, tomorrow, well, I'm going to bring this upon you tomorrow. Judgment is swift, and judgment is comprehensive. They shall cover the face of the earth. This is not going to be a minor uh, plague. This isn't going to be a partial plague. The whole earth, the face of the earth is going to be covered by these locusts, and they will eat the residue of that which escaped, which remaineth unto you from the hail. The mercy I gave you is going to evaporate. The grace I gave you will be gone, Pharaoh. Everything and everywhere will be destroyed. Judgment is personal. They shall fill thy houses and the houses of thy servants and the houses of the Egyptians. Time and time again, we've seen in these judgments that come through the plagues that it is personal, right? Starting with, I believe it was the frogs, right? Inside of your bed, chamber, Pharaoh. 
you're not escaping this plague. He got kind of got away from the, he didn't have to deal with that first plague so much. You know, he let his servants deal with it. It wasn't in his house. They dug some wells. They brought him some water. But by the second plague, Pharaoh was feeling it personally. And now here he's saying, hey, this is coming upon everybody, everywhere, all your servants. Everyone's going to be touched. And of course, you know who's listening, as we heard. The servants are like, we can't take any more. The judgment is personal, and the judgment is epic. It's epic. Reports that the, the, uh, the, in verse 6, I mean, if you look at the text there, it says, And they shall fill thy houses and the houses of all thy servants and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither thy, he says, which neither thy fathers nor thy father's fathers have seen since the day that they were upon the earth unto this day. And he turned himself and went out from Pharaoh. I mean, it's about face. I'm out of here. Now, what's amazing about that is we've already talked in the first point from last week about how important it is to pass on to the next generation all these mighty things that God's doing. But we can also see in verse 6 how God is doing something epic in the side of judgment that, that, that nobody's ever seen before. It's affecting the fathers and the sons, and, and, he, and he mentions their father's fathers. He's going back. From the beginning of this nation in Egypt, you've never seen judgment like this. And could you imagine if judgment came to this nation that's worse than the Civil War? Have you ever thought about those things? Sometimes I ponder those things. I mean, obviously, our nation is under judgment. I've mentioned that a few weeks ago. But what if judgment, you know, so if God was going to bleed out, you know, I can't remember the number. Anybody know the number of troops that died in the Civil War? 640,000. If God would bleed out 640,000 of a much smaller population over the sin of, of human slavery, what might he do over abortion? That's some pretty stiff judgment. I'm just saying. I mean, I'm not trying to scare anybody. But there's a reason you want to repent. There's a reason you want to bow your knee. There's a reason you want to be humble before a holy God because he's holy, for goodness sake. For Christ's sake. I mean, really, it's a big deal. And judgment is coming, wave upon wave of judgment. And God's saying, look, hey, listen, there's judgment coming now, Pharaoh, that nobody's seen. And it ain't over yet. Point C, false worship produces blindness. Verse 7, And Pharaoh's servants said unto him, How long, how long, Pharaoh, shall this man be a snare unto us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord that the, their God. Knowest thou not that Egypt is destroyed? It's not going to be destroyed, Pharaoh. It is destroyed. There's not much left here to destroy. He's going to run out of things to destroy. And they're probably smart enough to realize after all the food goes and after every, the water goes and everything else goes, we're probably next. Pharaoh's servants, they have the wisdom of the world. They have what we call common sense. They have enough common sense to see that, that God's judgment has been effective. But they still miss something because they don't have biblical sense. They're still blaming this on Moses. You notice that? He says, they say, how long shall this man be a snare to us? They missed the point. It isn't Moses that's your problem. It isn't the preacher in the pulpit that's the problem. It, it, it is the God of the universe, man. He's the God that's called people out. And he's saying, hey, let them go. That's your problem. You're not acknowledging Jehovah, the God that exists. 
the God that created the universe, the God who has taken out every one of your false deities with every plague and shown his power. Let the man go. Now they're singing the same song that Moses is. Let them go, Pharaoh. Just do what he says. That they may serve the Lord, their God. Knowest, knowest thou not that Egypt is destroyed? So, the, so Pharaoh's servants have the wisdom to realize they should proceed no further in holding on to the children of Israel. And they should let them go, serve the Lord, their God. The problem is, is they see man. And Moses, and they miss God. But the application today is very simple. Today, a lot of people can tell that there's a lot of bad things going on around them. But they dare not realize and recognize the judgment of God. People are not concerned about what God's doing. One of the most refreshing things I've seen in like in media is there's a, there's a former um, journalist from Kansas City. His name is Jason Whitlock. I don't know, maybe some of you knew him if you're a sports guy. And I was like about following my share sideways one day. I was watching him on a, on a national news syndicate, and they were asking his opinion about everything. And he just said it. He says, well, what we have here is satanic. He just says it like it is. It's just satanic. And I was like, whoa. I have not heard anybody say that on the news before. It was like a breath of fresh air. On numerous occasions, he he has said that that what's going on in the culture is really satanic. There's no other way to describe it. It's satanic. You don't hear that. You hear that, well, it's, it's Joe Biden's fault. It's the LGBTQ's fault. It's the Christian rights fault. It's the... It's the, you know, the QAnon guy's fault. It's this fault. It's that fault. You know what? You know what it is? It's a group of people in any one of those groups that won't bow their knee and confess their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if they don't know that message and had had every opportunity to receive it, guess whose fault that is? That's our fault. And don't miss it. Judgment begins where? The house of God. So before we go pointing our fingers at everybody else, we better make sure we're doing our business that God's called us to do, and that is to do what these lost men are able to do and say, let those people go. We should be praying for all these people that we're all twisted around the axle about. Oh, God, would you give them the grace to get saved? God, get them out of the clutches of Satan because it is satanic. And there is a mindset that's sweeping across people's minds, and there is an inability to think critically and understand logically what is going on. Why? Because people have begun to to just not even recognize that there is one God, and his name is Jesus Christ. It starts with the deity of who God is and who who's running this show. And there's confusion from the top to the bottom about who controls the planet, who controls the people. All these other political things, these geopolitical concerns, and these transgender issues, they don't even know what sex they are. Where does all that go? It's because they've left. It's a judgment. Romans chapter 1 is clear. It's a judgment of people who don't know God. And whose job is it to get them to know God? Oh, yeah, that's ours. Maybe the judgment's already come on the house of God. Because we haven't been as faithful as we ought with the message that we've been entrusted to. With the discipleship process that we are the only one that can steward from generation to generation. I mean, we just can't make excuses. We have to be about the Father's business. And when he comes, what do you want to be doing? I know what I want to be doing. I want to be busy about the Father's business. I hope you do too. I know you do.
Too many people are blaming politicians for our problems. When all of that is just symptoms of a lukewarm Christianity. Where we drop the Bible so people can relate to it instead of us relating to God. When we entertain instead of preaching the word of God as we've been called to do. When we meet the felt needs instead of making disciples. And we're not doing the work that hardens people and makes them tough enough to do what it takes to be soldiers for Christ. Which is ultimately what we've been called to do. If you want to be free, you've got to be disciplined. You think the guys that freed this nation were not disciplined? Hey, let's go fight a revolution. You know, let's smoke some weed and go shoot our gun at the enemy. Not. These were some disciplined people. There's records that I, I read a record a couple of, now I've forgotten. I wish I had the source. A record from a British officer who talked about these Puritans praying in their foxhole. And he had never seen people fight so fiercely. And I'm butchering it. Uh, but that's the essence of what he was writing about. Was Puritan? He's never seen people fight like the Puritans. Because they had nothing else to fight for. It wasn't over getting rich. It wasn't over anything. All they were fighting for was freedom. So they could worship their God. First Peter 4, 7. For the time has come. The judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them be that obey not the gospel of God? You remember those first few plagues? God was spanking Israel along with, with, along with Egypt. Before he, that fourth plague, he's like, okay, now the rest is on you, Egypt. Because our command to worship is unconditional, we cannot compromise. Verse 8, And Moses and Aaron were brought again unto Pharaoh, and he said unto them, Go serve the Lord your God, but who are all they that shall go? And, and Moses said, We will go with our young and with our old and with our sons and with our daughters and with our flocks and with our herds. We will go, for we must hold a feast unto the Lord. And he said unto them, Let the Lord be so with you, as I will let you go, and your little ones look to it, for evil is before you. Then he changes his tune and says, Not so. Go now that ye, uh, ye that are men and serve the Lord, for, ye did des- for, ye that, uh, for that ye desire, and they were, driven from out, uh, they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. So what Pharaoh's doing here is he's feigning compassion. The, the Pharaoh, the king guy who was good with taking babies and killing them because they were Hebrews, who's good with genocide, is now saying, Oh, my bleeding heart is, is concerned for your children and for your wives. Moses, I know you guys all want to go worship. I know what you're going to tell me, but I'm just telling you. What I'm telling you is that for your own good, you should just leave everybody here and you men go out and worship. And then just to show how compassionate he is, it says, and he drives them out, right? He kicks them right out the door. Of course, he knew the jig was up. We cannot allow the powers that be to set the the terms of worship. Freedom to worship God obediently was one of the fundamental reasons God delivered this nation from the British and Roman monarchies. We've seen in recent years that that if given the opportunity, Satan will utilize the powers that be to shut down the worship of God. And obedience to God is not only, I'm sorry, obedience to God is the only option for the child of God. That's why history is stained with the blood of Christians who have decided to die for Christ instead of compromise worship for men 
who at their core only feign compassion. The irony that, that Pharaoh, who endorsed decrees to kill the firstborn, would have any compassion for the women and children of Israel is laughable. So parents, don't kid yourself. You are the reason that God has placed you in your child's life to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The world, the flesh, and the devil will feed them daily portions of the king's meat so they end up walking and talking and thinking like a Babylonian. Make sure that you do not abandon your wife and your children, husbands, fathers, grandfathers. Don't abandon, don't abandon your family to this system. You better be a disciple of men. You better be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm talking to saved men. If you're a saved man, you better be a disciple, disciplined man of God. Or your family will be eating the king's meat and thinking like a Babylonian and going the way of Babylon, for you know it. You notice in Babylon, what, what kind of men did they have to be? They had to be men that were willing to tell the king, hey, with all due respect, king, we're not going to bow to that idol. And if you choose to slay us, well, I guess we're going to die today. Thank you very much. And you know how that went. God began to work in the powers that be to humble them so that they could receive the same God that Daniel, Azariah, Hananiah, Mishael, that those men worshipped. Because those men were men and they were disciplined and they stood upon and understood the word of God. So this is the, the third of four attempts by Pharaoh to get Moses to compromise the mission of God. Can the devil get you to compromise the mission? In Exodus 8, 25 through 27, he says, hey, man, come and worship God in the land of Egypt. You can worship, but just do it here. Don't leave. In Exodus 8, 28, he says, well, you just go. don't go too far, right? That's what the devil tells you. Don't get too crazy. I remember when I first got saved. Well, don't get too caught up in that. You might get a little zealous. Not too late. Uh, Exodus 10, 7 through 11, you, you can go, but don't take your family with you. You know, leave them at home. You can make this your thing. I mean, don't, you don't want to be overbearing. And then Exodus 10, 26, we haven't gotten there yet. You can go out, but leave the livestock here. At least leave me a tithe, right? Give me your, give me your goods. I, know, I want something out of you guys. 2 Corinthians six seventeen says, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. Sounds a little bit like 1 Corinthians or Romans chapter 12. And I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now think about that. He says, I, you're going to be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord God Almighty. That means I'm going to put my protective covering upon you. That means I'm going to provide for you, that you're going to be in my good stead, and Pharaoh can't even touch you. Beloved, we need to be taking heed to what God calls us to do. And I'm about done here, so hang with me. So lessons from locusts. What can we learn from locusts? Well, our story of redemption is to have a generational impact, and our command to worship is unconditional. And the last thing that we're going to learn from locusts is the power of God's word is undeniable. I hope that you can see that. I hope that I can see that. I hope we can understand that. In verses 12 through 14, he says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the, over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land, and even that the hail hath left. And Moses stretched forth his rod over the land, <clears throat> over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day, and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought locusts, and the locusts went up all over uh, up over all the land of Egypt and rested in all the coasts of Egypt. Very grievous uh, were they. 
before them, there were no such locusts as they as neither after them shall be such. This is a one and done. God says, this is what I'm going to do. And as always, he does exactly what he says. So point A, God delivers on his promises. He delivers on your salvation promise. He delivers on his judgment promise. He delivers exactly as he said. God could have had locusts arrive immediately. But in his grace, I believe he allowed this strong east wind to blow for 24 hours all day, all night. And, you know, there were some there were some uh, not Jews, but Egyptians that were probably thankful for that. They were probably thankful to have a little warning. This is the first mention of the east wind in Exodus. We see the first mention in Scripture in Genesis 41 and verse 6 when Pharaoh uh, has a dream about an east wind that brings famine upon Egypt. And it's Joseph who interprets the dream and provides solutions to save Egypt from the famine. Interestingly enough, an east wind blows for 24 hours. An east wind is associated in the Bible with God's deliverance of judgment. When he's bringing judgment, an east wind will be blowing through the entire Old Testament. You can look it up. The east wind will blow upon the Red Sea, by the way, in Exodus 14:21, And it's going to open up for Israel. The judgment that's intended for Pharaoh is going to open up an opportunity for Israel through an east wind. It's amazing, as that will bring the death of Pharaoh and his army. Sorry to give away the ending, but you've all seen the Ten Commandments. So we see in Exodus 10, 14 through 15, that God does exactly what he said he would do. And today there's a warning in Revelation 9, 3 through 7. It's interesting, and I want to bring this up, because it warns that there's a time coming. At the blowing of the fifth trumpet, the first of the three woes, that, that these creatures will descend out of the bottomless pit and torment those that have taken the mark of the beast for five months. This sounds like sci-fi stuff, I know. They will strike and sting people who have taken the mark of the beast. It will be like a scorpion sting. And, they, and, the, and the key of the bottomless pit will be placed in the hands of Satan for a season so that they cannot die. It is a horrible judgment where people will seek death and won't be able to find it. And I mention that because it's the last mention in the Bible of locusts. You see the first mention here in judgment and the last mention there. Now, these aren't locusts. These are like locusts in Revelation. And God uses that term for a reason because they're bringing judgment upon those that have bought whole hog in to the system that's to come. I was going to read all of that in Revelation 9, but I don't have time. But I'll just say this in verse 7. It says, And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle. These aren't little locusts. And their heads were as the crown, and their heads were as it were crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men. These are some sort of chimera. Or this is some sort of strange genetic malfunction, for sure. I don't know how God does all that or allows it, but they're locked in the center of the earth for now, so they're good. But when they come out, you don't want to be here. So just because God promises that his judgment of locusts in Exodus 10 is the only time in history it will occur, it doesn't mean that there isn't even more severe judgments to come. And I just mention that today because there's a mockery of the rainbow. And people are just mocking it, making fun of it, taking light of it. It's a symbol. I was looking at the rainbow. How many saw that rainbow yesterday? After the, wasn't that beautiful? You know what? I was looking at that, going, I got a picture of it. Somebody, I think Michelle Horton posted. I posted my picture. Everybody's posting their pictures. It's wonderful. 
you know, I was looking at that thing just like the rest of you. I'm thinking, man, what a beautiful thing God has left to remind us that he's not going to judge the earth by a flood. But you know, and I know, those of us who know the word of God, that doesn't preclude that he is not going to eventually burn this whole place up with fire. Now, praise God, we don't have to worry about that because Jesus Christ took our judgment on the cross. And all the wrath that God had for me and for you and really for the world was poured on his son at that time. The wrath to come is coming because people will not receive, like Pharaoh, the grace and the mercy of God. The hard heart will produce judgment. That's even worse. You think a flood of water was bad? Wait till a flood of fire comes. And so have some pity on these poor souls that are so ignorant and rebellious to mock God and to mock his judgment as they're just increasing more and more judgment upon themselves. You don't have to get mad about it. You don't have to get twisted around the axle. Just have some pity and preach to them the gospel. And if they won't receive it, man, just pray, God, let them go. Let them go because they're under the bondage of sin and death. Point B, and we'll be getting close to finish. Pharaoh treats the symptoms and refuses to deal with the problem, with his problem. In Exodus ten sixteen through 20, Pharaoh calls on Moses and Aaron in, in haste, right? We saw that he, he's, he's all of a sudden confessing his sin. He sounds repentant, sounds good. He's like, hey, forgive me. But he goes right back to his problem, which is hardness of heart and lack of humility. The scripture, is, the scripture is careful to note in Exodus ten eighteen that there remained not one locust in all of Egypt after Moses' intercession. Moses goes to praying. He says, okay. And he prays. God takes care of all the locusts. Not, it says very carefully, not one. As God, again, shows his power. You know, God is the only one who can destroy the earth, and he's the only one that can replenish it. And he will do that. The irony of God's deliverance reveals the final destination of Pharaoh. In two more plagues, he will find himself buried in the Red Sea along with the locusts that troubled that land. You know where those locusts went? He put them all into the sea, the Red Sea. The final resting place for the things that tormented him, those locusts are going to be his final resting place. And the things in the judgment that, 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 uh, that he saw were just a, a prelude to what God's going to do to him. He's just going to wipe him off the face of the planet. The irony of God's deliverance reveals the final destination of Pharaoh in those plagues. And Pharaoh thought that he was a god. But in reality, he was no better than the locust that invaded those. He was no better than an insect. He thought he was the, the son of Ra. He thought he was all that in a bag of chips. And God's like, you're like a locust I'm going to toss into the Red Sea. You're nothing, man. Without God... You're nothing. It's God who formed us. It's God who gives us breath. It's God that puts us on the planet. In fact, we know that like like all lost man right now, Pharaoh is in hell, wiggling like a worm that dies not, wishing that he could get a drop of water on his tongue. And if Pharaoh Pharaoh's life and his legacy is being preached generation to generation to generation to generation. I would not be surprised right now as I talk of Pharaoh if he somehow is not privy to what I'm saying. And if he could stand in this pulpit and and advocate, he would tell each and every one of us to listen to what the Word of God says and to bow our knee to the King of kings and the Lord of lords because he was greatly deceived. 
So here's the conclusion. Why would anyone want to resist the goodness and the mercy of a kind and loving God? You know what? We end where we began in verse 3. How long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself before me? I would lay odds if we went across the room. Almost every one of you, I don't know who's here and who's not. I bet most people would say, Brian, I have trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I would say, hallelujah. But if you haven't, man, how long we refuse to humble yourself before him. And then Romans 14, 11 says, For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. That he, he's Lord. Philippians chapter 2, to the glory of God. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Beloved, man, if you're saved today, man, you have something more to celebrate than the revolution and the independence of the United States, which is a great celebration, and I'm all in on it. I'm, I'm, I'm all about it. Shoot off fireworks, do everything you want to do, and have a great time doing it. But, beloved, you've been delivered to so much more. And I pray as we leave here today, we'll live like it. And that our generation and the generations after us will not face the wrath to come because they have trusted in the only one that can save them. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And let's stand together. Heavenly Father, as we conclude this time, we're thankful for